We have a sickness system, not a prevention system. On episode two of the Prevention Matters podcast, we speak with Donna Shalala, former Congresswoman and U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services. She shares with us how her background in the Peace Corps prepared her for a career in public service, why prevention continues to take a back seat to healthcare, how to best communicate prevention information to policymakers, and what to do if you're ever invited to the White House. All of that and more coming up on this episode of the Prevention Matters podcast. The National Prevention Science Coalition is the premier professional association dedicated to translating scientific knowledge into effective and sustainable programs and policies to enhance the well-being of children, families, and communities. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. And now the host of the Prevention Matters podcast. Dr. Robert Lachos. Dr. Shalala, welcome to the Prevention Matters podcast. Thank you. So I'd first just like to ask, um, tell us a little bit about your background and how it relates to a career in public service and your interest in health and human services. Well, I started out in public service after I graduated from college. I went immediately into the Peace Corps and served for two years in Iran in a mud village. We built an agricultural college. I taught English, a little rural sociology. We worked in the villages. Um, That was a life-changing experience because it really exposed me, not simply to public service, uh, but also to the role of the United States. It made me a citizen of the world. It taught me about uh, the developing world and about poverty and, When I returned to the United States, I went to graduate school, basically thought I was going to be a journalist, but ended up getting a PhD um, at Syracuse and then went on to uh, uh, an academic career at Columbia. Um, When Jimmy Carter came to office, he was looking for women and um, I was basically an urbanist uh, with a lot of uh, public policy experience and uh, they offered me a job at HUD as the Assistant Secretary for Policy when I was quite young. From there, I moved into higher education administration for the most part, though I taught every year in public policy, kept my connections in Washington, served on the board of the Children's Defense Fund with Hillary Clinton. People ask me all the time, how do you get to be a cabinet officer? And my answer is, you're very good in your field and um, you make friends and you keep in touch for a very long period of time. And that's how I ended up in the Clinton administration as a cabinet officer. Wow. So you really think that um, serving in the Peace Corps really set the stage for a career in a number of different areas in public service? It did. And it, um, it is my favorite job by far. People ask me, what's your favorite job? Was it in academia? Um, being president of a university, being a professor, or or being in government a couple of times? And my answer is no, it was the Peace Corps. 
So after being a public policy professor, working at HUD, and then serving as the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, and later as a member of Congress, you must have dealt with both prevention of disease, mental health issues, health promotion, as well as health care. But prevention is much different than health care. How do you view the differences and similarities between prevention and health care, that is to say, clinical care? Um, you know, it's uh, uh, they're integrated in some ways. Um, prevention has always been a challenge in the United States. We have built a healthcare system based on specialists. We fund our economic incentives are not aligned for prevention for primary care. A little bit more in the Affordable Care Act, but we've really put our money into high tech, into um, well-trained specialists. Um, it's the fundamental difference between us and the rest of the world. Um, and it's not that we're not willing to use evidence. It's just that our economic incentives run in a different way. Uh, and we know about prevention because frankly, America's health has been affected more by preventive me measures, including clean air and clean water and building codes, as well as reducing the number of kids that start to smoke and uh, good nutrition um, and exercise. We've extended more a life more through uh, those kind of prevention than any of the deep investments in high tech. Um, and while I am a huge fan of the National Institutes of Health, if we could get everyone to exercise and eat right and, um, and not smoke, uh, we'd go a long way towards uh, prevention being the cornerstone of our healthcare system. Do you think it is, um, besides it just being the economic model that we have in the United States, do you also think that it's kind of the way that we view sickness and, and disease? You know, I think a lot of times people in the United States, and, and you could say the same thing in other westernized countries, subscribe to the Western medical model that says, you know, a disease or disorder has a single cause, and we should treat that particular disease or disorder rather than pre prevent it. Do you think it's because we have that mindset? Uh, we do have that mindset. I mean, we have a sickness system, not a prevention yeah. system. Um, and But it's the economic incentives that have driven it. If we reverse those, we could change the culture. Uh, we're just starting to do that, by the way, with the social determinants of health, recognizing that there are lots of things that we can do uh, to wrap our arms around people, particularly the most vulnerable, that will improve health outcomes. So do you think if, if say, there was a model that was, you know, instead of paying physicians and other clinical providers for providing services, maybe we pay them a salary and then everybody that they have to treat, we knock a little bit off of that particular salary, right? So the incentive would be to keep those people from ever visiting your examination room in the first place. Well, you know, we have some models, the Kaiser model, for example, where people are actually on the payroll. The academic health centers have people on the payroll for the most part, as opposed to uh, getting paid for every procedure you do. Medicare Advantage, which is very prominent down here, which is uh, a well-financed HMO, basically, 
is a more integrated uh, model of healthcare, but we're still not making the kind of investments in prevention. I think in large part because people don't see the evidence as very clear because it's, it's long range evidence um, uh, on all of these things. Uh, I remember the discussion about tobacco when we took on the tobacco industry. Someone literally said in the room with me, shoot, if we um, eliminate tobacco, kids smoking and everything else, we're going to have heavier Medicare costs because people are going to live longer. So that kind of attitude <laughs> and conviction, I've always thought the problem with evidence and primary care is that we kept thinking that we would save money. And the issue is not saving money, it's saving lives, it's outcomes. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you, you saying that. And, and I really appreciate you kind of thinking about it's not just an economics thing. It's reducing health disparities. It's, it's getting people to be um, well. It's actually using our money in, in a wise way. But, you know, from talking to different policymakers at the federal level and state level, one of the things that I found in my career is that policymakers use different types of information to make decisions. And what sources of information have you used in the past as a policymaker to make decisions? Well, I use data. I'm a social scientist. So I'm interested in research. I'm interested in data. I'm not your example of the typical policy uh, maker. The thing that has the most impact, I think, of members of Congress is stories. Stories that illustrate the data and stories from their community, activities from their community, as opposed to giving them numbers all the time. So if, I'm, if I want to influence a policymaker's decision and I write a report and it's the type of report that I might publish in an academic journal or a type of report I might submit to HHS for a progress report, that's not what we should be doing, right? Well... You know, you can send that to their staff members, but when you talk to them, you have to talk in, in, in a pretty straightforward way to tell them what the advantages are to save lives in their community, to improve the quality of care, to reduce equity. Um, and that you have to do by examples. And, and what's the, you know, so say I have information like that, I have stories, I can turn that data into a story that is, you know, relevant and pertinent to whatever issue that policymaker is, um, you know, contemplating. Um, how do you get access to those types of folks? You know, you talked about giving reports to staff, um, but how do you get access to, let's say, members of Congress or even their staff? Well, if you're from that district, you make an appointment. I saw lots of people from my district, both uh, here in Miami as well as in Washington. And if I couldn't see them, then a senior member of my staff would see them and then report back to me. The other thing is I have encouraged people to write op-eds and letters to the editor. The only people I know that read the editorial pages are elected officials. So what's the best way to reach members of Congress to influence them? The way to reach members of Congress is not through Politico, uh, but through your local media. And so if I'm uh, a researcher and I'm based in, in California and I want to influence um, 
a bill or, or an initiative that you would be working on in Florida, how do I go about doing that? I publish it in, you know, a Miami-Dade County newspaper. You look at who's on the committee of jurisdiction and see if okay. you can find a Californian. That, that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, tell us about your time that you spent interacting with the National Prevention Science Coalition, particularly your role on the um, House Prevention Caucus. Well, um, you know, the House Prevention Caucus is trying to change the culture and trying to get more people interested in prevention. I think there are increasingly members of Congress that are interested in prevention. Look, as you go through a COVID epidemic, you know, vaccines are prevention. Masks are prevention. Social distancing is prevention. So um, we're beginning to teach people that there are things you could do. We have just had the lowest numbers of flu uh, that I think we've ever had in the United States in large part because of the impact of COVID and the increase in the number of people that went out and got flu vaccines. Right. And, and, and you know, not only just the flu, but other communicable diseases, common cold, you know, um, you know, all types of them. Now, as it relates to, to COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, how do you think that this pandemic has shaped the relationship between science and policymaking, you know, particularly in the last couple of years? It's taught a lot of people that weren't interested in science, a lot of science. One of the things that I have seen as a result of the pandemic is that there's been an erosion in the public trust of scientists because of the way that this epidemic has been politicized. Well, of course, we've had that stream for a very long period of time, and it was played out by the previous uh, administration, obviously. But, you know, watch, watch the millions of people that are desperate to get their vaccine. They may not have respect for science, but boy, they want what science has produced their vaccine. And, uh, you know, I know you're all concerned about the deniers and the people that don't want to take the vaccine. That number is dropping dramatically as their friends and neighbors get the vaccine. And as employers say to their employees, hey, we can't open full time unless we've got lots of people that have had the vaccine. Do you think that the relationship between, you know, researchers and science and policymakers um, is going to change in the next couple of years because of the pandemic? Obviously, what we saw during the Trump administration was kind of a, a real questioning on on, on science and in this idea that people can have different truths or different uh, set of facts. Do you have hope that those types of, um, you know, that situation is going to be remedied in the future? Oh, yeah. I, I think as long as this administration is consistent in their messages, as long as the scientists are trusted, this is all about trust, as long as the doctors and the nurses um, are consistent in the message, um, I think I think that will actually improve America's attitudes about science. So if if we can do that, if we can do a better job um, as scientists in giving policymakers truthful, transparent uh, information in a way that's most useful um, to them, um, are you saying that we probably are going to do a better job of um, protecting the nation's health? Absolutely. I think we're about to go into the golden age of healthcare and science. And, and 
Can you talk a little bit more about what you see as the well, golden age? Well, I just think that it's a matter of survival. And there's a recognition now of the interface between the economy and science. We used to talk about science being a driver of the economy, but now the health of Americas is, of Americans and of people around the world is directly related to a robust uh, economy. And do you think that studies that show that, well, for every dollar we spend on prevention, you know, there's been studies that have shown that, you know, we save $7 in, in healthcare costs. Are those valuable, those cost-benefit, cost-effectiveness studies, are those valuable for policymakers like yourself? Yeah, for one line, to make the argument about prevention. But at the end of the day, the best example of what you can do for prevention is if you've lived through the COVID. And you can just say, hey, this is what science and research can can do for exactly. people. Exactly. Well, um, we're almost done with the interview here. But before we end, I'd like to get to um, our, our popular speed round. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. What is one hobby you wish you had more time for? Um, going to the theater. Going to the theater. Great. Wisconsin winters or Florida summers? Um, Wisconsin winters. What is the one thing I should definitely do if I'm ever invited to the White House? Be respectful. Be respectful. If you could go back in time, what would you tell your 14-year-old self? Learn more languages. (laughs) Learn more languages. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? Um, I think probably Lincoln. Lincoln. Why Abraham Lincoln? Because he had so much courage. Yeah, he did. So that's it for the speed round. Um, what's next for you in your career and, and in your life? I have no idea. I'm actually back in the classroom uh, teaching health policy to students, so um, to college students. So um, I think I'll continue to do this for a while. And what is what are they excited about right now, this generation of students? This generation of students about getting back into the classroom. Yeah, they just want to be face-to-face, right? Yep, they want to see their friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate your, your time and uh, making yourself available to, to, for this interview. Thank you very much. The Prevention Matters Podcast is the official podcast of the National Prevention Science Coalition. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please click on the subscribe button.